0: Welcome to the Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm Toby Buckle. What do Islamists believe? Who are Islamists? What do they think about politics? The permissibility or not of violence? The nature and legitimacy of democracy? And what is their relation with contemporary liberalism? Discussing this with me today, I have the Brookings Institute Senior Fellow, Shadi Hamid. So, as long-term listeners of the podcast will know, I'm, although personally an atheist, very interested in religion and very interested in the way that it has shaped our history and continues to shape and affect our contemporary politics and morality. I've been cautious about discussing the role of Islam, however, because it's become incredibly fraught and difficult to talk about in our contemporary American political discourse. It seems to me like there is one group of people who, in a way that is simplistic and reductive, want to say that there is, quote-unquote, inherently something pernicious about Islam something incompatible with democracy and liberalism and um, in support of violence. On the other side, the left, which I am more sympathetic to in general, it does seem like the left will not accept any discussion of Islam that is not fully exculpatory. In other words, you can only say things on the left that say that Islam is completely compatible with democracy or modern liberalism. Now, the reality is, of course, that Islam is not one thing. Liberalism, for that matter, is not one thing. Democracy is not one thing. There are many different branches and schools of thought. So before we even get on to the question of what is the relationship between Islam or Islamism or democracy or liberalism, We need to first understand what we're talking about, which is what we're going to do in the first half of this interview. So, as is becoming quite common on the podcast, this is going to be a two-parter. In the first part, I'm just seeking to understand from someone who is one of the world's leading experts on this what Islamism is, what the different types of Islamism are, and what they believe about the state, the permissibility of violence, and the role of democracy. In the second part, we talk about what that means for people who are liberals today. So my guest, as I mentioned, is Shadi Hamid. Shadi is a senior fellow at the Brookings Institute, and he works on US relations with the Islamic world in the Center for Middle East Policy. He's the author, and I really strongly recommend this book, by the way, it's a great book. He's the author of Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. He's also the co-editor of Rethinking Political Islam, and the co-author of Militants, Criminals, and Warlords, The Challenge of Local Governance in an Age of Disorder, and the author of Temptations of Power, Islamists and Illiberal Democracy in a New Middle East. Shadi is also a contributing editor at The Atlantic and vice chair of the project on Middle East Democracies board of directors. So you've got to give it to me, right, as setting up this podcast. I get some good people on. And Shadi, if you listen to podcasts on politics and religion, you might have already heard before. But he's one of the most competent people in the world to describe in a way that i think is nuanced and in depth but also fundamentally honest and clear-eyed um about the nature of islamists beliefs and their role in the world so like i said this is the first part where we literally just focus on that question what islamists believe more or less without judgment or evaluation So in the first part, we're simply, well, Shadi more than me. I don't pretend to be an expert on this area. Um, It's a more traditional interview where we're just trying to get to the heart of what is in this belief system and what are its different variants. Then in the second part, we take up what does all that mean for liberalism, and particularly a question which As someone who's thought a lot about political philosophy, I'm happy to get involved with this discussion. How does liberalism cope with people who fundamentally disagree with its basic premises? Be that a hardcore Islamist, or say, you know, someone who's strongly racist in America, or something like that. So, let's get straight into it. This is part one of two. And the next part will be out next week. So it is my absolute pleasure to present Shadi Hamid. Okay, so I am joined today by Shadi Hamid. Shadi, thanks so much for coming on the podcast.
1: Hi, Toby. Thanks for having me.
0: So before we get started, um, do you just want to introduce yourself? Um, What do you write about and think about? What's your research on?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, So my name is Shadi Hamid. I'm a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, which is a think tank in, in Washington, as I'm sure many of your listeners know. Um, I work at the intersection of Islam and politics primarily, um, but also do dive into some other topic areas, de- depending, um, but, uh, I, I guess, um, one big thing that I've been talking about over the last couple of years is this question of whether Islam is fundamentally different than other religions. And that draws on. A book I published in 2016 called um, Islamic Exceptionalism, How the Struggle Over Islam is Reshaping the World. Um, and we can probably talk about that more in, in, in our discussion. Um, but those are um, anything having to do with religion and politics is what fascinates me on on a regular basis. And not just even Islam, but also I've been I've gotten in some discussions and podcasts about Christian theology especially um evangelical christianity um so yeah that's a bit of a summary
0: cool Let's... I mean, maybe we might get back to... I've, I've spent actually a lot of time on Christian theology, a, a weird amount of time for an atheist on Christian theology on this show. Um, starting with Islamism then, I've always... Actually, let's just start with the definition of terms. I've always taken Islamism to be distinct from Islam generally. Islam is the religion of, what, 1.4 billion people around the world. Islamism is like... When principles from that religion are applied to the political domain, it's it's the attempt to have some sort of governance based on Islam, um, distinct from the religion. Is that right as a definition, or do you want to amend that?
1: Yeah, that that's right. Um, so I would define Islamists as those who believe that Islam and Islamic law should play a central role in public life and politics. But I would add one more thing to that. Um, that there are ordinary Muslims who would fit that definition, but aren't Islamists. They're just people. They're ordinary Muslims who happen to believe that Islam should play a central role in politics. So Islamists take it one step further in that they organize politically around those objectives. So there's something more self-conscious about being an Islamist um, where You decide that this is how you want to define yourself and identify yourself in the public sphere, and you prioritize those issues over, say, economic issues or class issues. Because you could have, let's say, a Muslim in Egypt or Pakistan who agrees with the implementation of Sharia law, but they don't want to define themselves in that way in the political sphere because, let's say, they prioritize economic advocacy or socialism, and they think that's more important, um, and th- those wouldn't be Islamists, those would be socialists or or leftists from an, an economic standpoint.
0: So by analogy, um, in the West, you might have people who are conservative broadly in terms of like, say, wanting a traditional family structure or like... All sorts of just different approaches to life, but they might not use the label conservative because they don't want to be associated with a specific political party.
1: Yes, and that gets into an interesting question of how do we deal with the question of self-definition? Because there are there is one party in particular, in Nahda in Tunisia, which most scholars like myself have considered as an Islamist movement, but they're now rebranding themselves as Muslim Democrats for very tactical reasons and they've been open that one of the reasons they try to shed the islamist label is because when people think islamist they often think about groups like ISIS and they don't want to be lumped in that category so there isn't necessarily an ideological transformation that they've gone through and it's more about hey we don't we don't want the bad press so i'm a little bit skeptical about indulging that and changing our definition, definitions or labels accordingly, because for me, Islamist is not a pejorative. Islamist is just a very descriptive term, and it's actually an improvement over what we used to call Islamists, say, 20 years ago. And you might recall that in the 90s in particular, and if you look at older books, they'll use the phrase Islamic fundamentalists, or um, which which is problematic for a number of reasons. Um, and that was a term that was more used for Christians, so Christian fundamentalists, and then people just kind of transferred that to Muslims. And Islamists was a way to kind of get at something a little bit more descriptive that didn't have the baggage of some of the previous terms. Um, and, you know, the interesting thing is that most Islamists still call themselves Islamists in Arabic. People say, well, oh, you know, you Western scholars, why are you using this term? You know, but I'm like, hey, if you actually talk to Islamists on the ground, and one thing that I've really tried to do in my work and I very much value is I spend a lot of time with Islamists here because I want to understand their worldview. I want to immerse myself in their world. And if we want to be scholars of Islamist movements, There's no way to do that without serious ground level engagement. And I'm very skeptical of people who come into this and they say a lot of things about Islamists. But when you ask them, well, do you know any um, you hang out with them? um, They're like, no, we just read their work from afar. And that's just not enough. Um, But I should also say that and, you know, I can talk about this more if you'd like, but This is not to say that we have to like Islamists. And personally, we can disagree with them profoundly, especially as Americans or Westerners who believe in the classical liberal tradition, or at least aspects of the classical liberal tradition. Obviously, there's going to be quite a divergence between what many of us believe and what Islamists in any number of Middle Eastern countries believe. So we don't have to like them or agree with them but we do have to understand them and that's actually something i try to apply to how i how i talk and think about um, trump supporters or white nationalists or national front supporters in france
0: or even or even the different groups within the left like the left is an the left wing is an umbrella term that means all sorts of different things yeah, like exactly. there's, there's there's two projects you can have a place on the map that you're trying to defend or you can just be charting out the map those are just Two different intellectual projects, and I mean they inform each other, but those are those are separate things. So let's let's start with like just trying to describe what Islamists actually believe, and then maybe towards the end we can get back to like how, if at all, that squares with. And I'm using big scare quotes here, Western values. Um, so the first thing I guess to say, um, and I'm just repeating your work back to you, is. Islamist covers a wide range. So in like Tunisia, a number of North African states, you've got people who almost just appear to be a regular conservative party within a democratic system, and then running the gambit all the way up to God knows what would we consider Saudi Arabia Islamists um, on the other end. Um, So perhaps you could start by just giving us some sense of before we try and say what, Islamists have in common, like how far apart they can be in terms of both beliefs and political strategies?
1: Yeah, so Islamist is a pretty broad category, but I would make, I would separate Islamists into two kind of broad subcategories, still somewhat broad subcategories of mainstream Islamists versus radical Islamists, or extremists. Um, and mainstream Islamists are the majority of Islamists who, um, engage in the political process. They believe in parliamentary participation. They believe in procedural democracy, if not necessarily substantive democracy or liberal democracy, because of course, Islamists by definition are not liberals. Otherwise they wouldn't be Islamist, right? So, um, and the mainstream Islamists are those who come primarily from the Muslim Brotherhood School of Thought, the Muslim Brotherhood being the um, the oldest Islamist movement in the Middle East and beyond, founded in 1928 in Egypt. And um, the Muslim Brotherhood School of Thought is also defined by a bottom-up grassroots approach. So they believe in reform starting at the level of the individual, and I guess— for the most part, or mostly with men, (laughs) um, at least traditionally. And then um, these good Muslim men then have good Muslim families with their good Muslim wives. And then, so then the family unit is very important. Then if you have enough good Muslim families who are going back to the purity of Islam, then that will kind of filter up to the level, to the societal level, And if you have Islam imbuing society in this broader sense, the idea is that over time that will be reflected in government in a kind of natural, organic way. And that's why when we talk about groups like the Muslim Brotherhood, we're often talking about how they play the long game, because they're not trying to seize power or create this intellectual vanguard and just like get things done right away. It's very much steady as she goes. Um, and that can lead to a lot of frustration with how the Muslim Brotherhood approaches political life, because you have to have a lot of patience. And this is something that the Brotherhood always emphasizes with its followers, the idea of sub in Arabic, which means patience. And um, not everyone is going to be on board with that kind of approach. Right so um bottom up grassroots gradualist engaging in parliamentary participation and the last thing i'll mention on this um is that they they form political parties but their their traditional core function is religious education preaching and social service provision so it's only in recent decades that we've seen islam these mainstream islamist movements really emphasizing political parties and participation in partisan in partisan work and for many decades they would be very much more focused on winning hearts and minds so to speak through providing services and sharing their ideas and and so on. Um, so that's those are the mainstream Islamists on and then on the other side which we uh, which we've mentioned is Isis Al Qaeda. The extremists who use violence. And not only that, they, um, they don't believe in anything having to do with democracy because they prioritize divine sovereignty in a very literal sense over popular sovereignty. So in other words, God is the sole lawgiver. So they're very skeptical of any talk of parliaments, because what are parliaments basically about? Parliaments are about people legislating and, um taking that upon themselves, and they see that as very dangerous and even in some ways a sign of disbelief of really violating god's law and god's will so it's not just a so violence is important, but that's more on the tactical side, perhaps the bigger difference is on the real deep ideological differences on the role of legislation
0: mm. so where would you put something like Saudi Arabia? or, I'm just going to put a flag here of correct my pronunciation for any of this if it needs correcting, but where would you put something like Wahhabism or something like that within that dichotomy as he constructed it?
1: Wahhabism would be on the far right um, because they share this skepticism of elected governments or parliaments, um, and Saudi Arabia um, is still one of the most rigidly Islamist states in the world, although... Um, and this has been something, uh, something that's been uh, de- debated more today because of the young crown prince who's become quite controversial, Mohammed bin Salman, or yes, who's tried to introduce some reforms, which is a bit of a different issue. But still, I mean, Saudi Arabia still uh, still has this rigid framework and draws on Wahhabism or what we might call a kind of ultra-conservative Salafi strain of Islam. Um, and there, there, the emphasis is on a, a very strict literalism, and a strict literalism which doesn't really have much place for, um, again, ideas around parliamentary participation or democratization or even procedural democracy. Um, clerics play a very central role, although that, that is changing somewhat now in today's Saudi Arabia. But yes, Wahhabism generally would be on the right end spectrum.
0: So just to clarify for, like, my own understanding of this, as you made the, the sort of category distinction between um, mainstream Islamism and radical Islamism, radical Islamism in that construction isn't just non-state actors and terrorist groups like Al-Qaeda and ISIS. It also is the governing class in a number of states, such as Saudi Arabia.
1: Yeah, so when we talk about Islamist movements, we're generally talking about groups that w- we think about them more as not being in government. And w- I think when we're talking about Islamist governments, it is something a little bit different. Um, and Saudi Arabia doesn't fit very well in how we talk about Islamist movements because we're not talking about a movement, really. Right. But, yes, we're talking about an is- a state that has a clear Islamist orientation. It is governed. By a strict interpretation of Sharia law. That said, I think it's hard to call Saudi Arabia a radical state. And here we're going into, you know, labels. Labels are problematic and labels don't get at some of these deeper nuances because Saudi Arabia is very much unlike a group like ISIS because ISIS is radical. They want to they would they want to undermine existing state structures Where Saudi Arabia is very protective. Of the, of the kind of modern nation-state status quo, and they don't want that to be changed. They don't want to undermine existing state structures. Why? Because they're one of those. And existing-
0: Saudi Arabia is deeply, deeply, deeply in bed with the great Satan, right? Like <laughs> their...
1: Yeah, so, I mean, in that sense, you can have an Islamist regime like Saudi Arabia, which is still very supportive of the U... Uh, to some extent, at least, the U.S.-led regional order, and they do support, at least, um, in theory, um, certain U.S. objectives in the region, and not necessarily necessarily challenge American hegemony.
0: Okay. Just, I mean, with all the necessary caveats about terms being vague and imprecise and, you know, often not capturing some of the real tensions. Let's just, can you just cash out and give me, like, a a couple of sentence definition, like, just a short definition of Wahhabi and Salafi? Because you hear these terms all the time in coverage, and they're almost never described, like, what people are actually referring to, and sometimes you wonder if the people themselves using them actually know what they're referring to. So what is Wahhabism and what is um, Salafi Muslims?
1: So Wahhabis don't call themselves Wahhabis. <laughs> okay, <laughs> you need to keep in mind, but Wahhabism is um, a particularly Saudi strain of Salafism, which derives from um, a, a uh, Wah- Ibn Ibn Abdul Wahhab, who was um, an 18th century uh, religious figure. Who um, and a lot can be said about him. I won't go into all of that. But um, there are certain characteristics which Wahhabis share, which Salafis, I'll just kind of say some of the some of the broad characteristics of this uh, very suspicious of Sufism or spiritual approaches to uh, to Islam. And um, so anything like praying in front of graves or um, taking saints very seriously, this was something that used to be a, a big issue. In pre-modern Islam, particularly 18th century, but going into the 19th century, and the Saudis in particular, as they formed their new state, were very were very much against those kinds of more mystical forms of Islam. So it's very much a puritanist approach to Islam. The idea is to get rid of what they would consider to be impurities, uh, and to go to the origins. And this is where the word Salafi comes from. Salafis Salih, who are the pious, um, the pious forefathers of Islam, and the idea is to essentially go back to the original purity, and all the stuff that came in between throughout the centuries, including in the medieval era, that those are seen as dangerous, um, uh, dangerous innovations.
0: So. And I'm guessing politically that would fall on the radical side in terms of being suspicious of democracy and parliaments and stuff like that.
1: Yeah, those would be considered innovations. Right. And modern innovations and Western innovations. So the idea, so Salafis generally, if you can't find um, a textual rationale or justification for something in the original text, and by the original text here, we'd be referring to the Quran, but also to the prophetic hadith, the sayings and actions of Prophet Muhammad. So if you don't find something about parliaments or democracy in those original texts, then to introduce them would be to, again, be innovating and to be usurping God's will and God's law.
0: Okay, so let's sum up what we've covered so far. Islam is a I use again, scare quotes, world religion comprising of a billion, a billion and a half people. Within that, you have a subgrouping of um, Islamic believers who we would call Islamists, who are people who want to apply Islam to politics. And within that, we can make two broad distinctions between moderate Islamists, um, typified by the Egyptian Brotherhood, who are happy to contest parliamentary elections, work from the ground up, and more radical Islamists who view democracy with suspicion, who want a sort of more direct quote-unquote divine law. These would be people like ISIS, Al-Qaeda, in some sense, although it's a governing majority, uh, the Saudi Arabian government, then within the radical side, one subgrouping of that are Salafis, who are kind of like Puritans, if you want a Western analogy, and Wahhabism is, um, is a subgrouping of that yeah. subgrouping. Did I cover all that right?
1: One thing I would maybe say is I've, I've moved away personally from using the word moderate in terms of moderate Islamism, moderate Islamists, because I feel like moderate can muddy the waters sometimes, and it's less it's less descriptive and I think people when they hear moderate, they think about a certain value judgment and um, and let's Islamists would not be considered moderate in the u s so if you just took some random Islamists and inserted them here, they would be pretty far right so I like mainstream because it gets at this idea that they are mainstream within their own society. So nothing that they're advocating is particularly radical or, again, or or to use the definition itself, out of the mainstream. Um, So I I, that's I tend to use that. I I would. um, But, yes, the way you characterize that, that's I I like that. Um, So, yes. okay.
0: Um, I mean, I do want to get back to sort of. The conflict, or at least perceived conflict with liberalism, but just trying to sort of get a sense before we make any judgments of what people actually believe. Um, here's my next question, and I'm already getting a little nervous about this discussion, because this is one that is politically contentious, is what are the comparative size of all of the groupings that we've outlined in terms of like what percentage of Muslims worldwide? could be said to believe them. And, you know, we can get into professed belief versus actual and um, identifying with a label versus underlying beliefs. But just generally, what do you have a sense of, like, what percentage of the world's Muslims are Islamists in a broad sense? And within that, what the percentage would be on the democratic versus radical side?
1: Well, I don't think that we could really... Um... One thing that we could talk about is the percentage of people who are sympathetic to Islamist parties in certain countries. And that's something we do actually have numbers for. I hesitate to kind of to come up with a number for Islamists because, again, it's 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 somewhat self-conscious and it is something that people adopt in in a somewhat explicit way. And there may be, again, a lot of ordinary Muslims who agree with Islamists on a lot of things, mm. but would never really see themselves in that particular way because they're not very political. They're not very partisan. Let me not,
0: Yeah. Let, let me give a bit of context for the question. The reason I ask is if you take like the new atheists or yeah, you know, someone like Bill Maher, or like people who are, you know, critical of religion and Islam in particular, they often cite poll numbers that show very, very high percentages of Muslims, not in the US but around the world, um, who would say uh favor implementing Sharia, right? Like you get 70, 80 percent in a lot of countries would own that. Um and then they cite a lot of like quite scary numbers about like the percentage of Islam's Islamic people, so it's the percentage of Muslims who would support um some of the more extreme interpretations of Sharia, like killing apostates and so on, and like how how do you, you, you think about overall characterizations like that um like because I think it seems like there are people who are very ideologically invested in saying this is a large percentage of the world's Muslims, and there's people who are very ideologically invested in saying it's a tiny fraction who really want to implement Islamic law. Um, Look, and,
1: so are, yeah, yeah. No, totally. And, and I, and I had this debate with Sam Harris on his, pa- on his podcast. Um, so are there high percentages of Muslims in various countries who believe in what we as Americans would consider to be pretty, pretty, uh, extreme or problematic things? Yes. And there's no reason to kind of pretend otherwise. I think to do so just muddies the waters, um, but, um, but that doesn't necessarily, okay, so it depends what aspects of Islamic law we're talking about and what we find to be particularly problematic, but yes, most Muslims in, say, Egypt, Jordan, Pakistan, Malaysia, whatever, are not liberals. They people who believe in the basics, so... This gets to, I think, the broader issue, which I think we're, we're um, we are kind of approaching in in a particular way, which is that Islam is different. So what are we comparing Islam to? We're presumably comparing it to what we're more familiar with, Christianity or Judaism or just not being particularly religious. And one argument that I've made is that and, and I believe quite strongly is that Islam Islam plays an outsized role in politics. It has historically. It does today. I think it will continue to do so for the foreseeable future. It's more, it's quite difficult to separate the political. To kind of secularize Islam would be quite difficult or actually impossible. And that doesn't necessarily mean that Islam is inherent, I don't like the word inherently, inherently political. It just means that um, Islam has a particular relationship to political engagement and political life. But I even hesitate to phrase it that way because if I phrase it that way, I'm I'm kind of conceding the kind of the post-enlightenment idea that that religion and politics are separate categories that was never. So, the- so
0: it's weird. You have to go back and unpick it. You have to say that um, religion and politics are existing on a continuum, or they're like the same thing in Islam. But what, but even the way you're phrasing it assumes that they're separate things to begin with, right? Yeah,
1: it's problematic. But this is the way we talk about these right. issues. So how else can you really talk about it? And this is intelligible to or modern people. This is, you know, we make these distinctions almost a second nature, which itself is problematic. And I think we have to question some of our starting premises in these debates, because if you ask, so for example, if you asked, um, let's say a member of the Muslim Brotherhood, why do you do what you do? Or why did you participate in this protest? Is it because of religion or is it because of politics? That question would be bizarre because that's not how understand what they do. They would say, well, why, I mean, where, where does religion end and politics begin? Because and this goes back to the founding moment of Islam is that prophet Muhammad, Jesus was not just a theologian or a cleric or a prophet, he was also a politician and his involvement in politics was not something that was separate or secondary to his prophethood it was part of his prophethood it was part of his prophecy so um so we can't just say well oh yeah prophet muhammad was a head of a proto state in medina but that's 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 a different sort of thing no that was part of what he brought uh, to the early muslims and no one no one was interested in separating those concepts so that does mean That when Muslims are going back to their founding moment, it becomes more difficult to make some of these artificial distinctions. Where I think in Christianity, it's easier to do that because Jesus was a dissident against a reigning state. And the early Christians were not, even after, you know, well after Jesus, were not necessarily in a position to govern. They were not thinking about the implementation of law. They were thinking about how they would coexist with other forms of law, Roman law, for example, um, and it's only several centuries later that Christians have to contend with their own governance, right? So there, there are made that's a major difference. So if we want to have this conversation in an intellectually serious way, we have to interrogate our own, I think, uh, our own conceptions, which are very informed by Christianity and also and also modern secularism.
0: Right. And, that, yeah, because the church state distinction, like so many of the categories and concepts we use, is unique to particular branches of human intellectual development, and it's not it's not a common universal thing shared by everyone. Indeed, to many people, it's basically unintelligible. and would be I, I also think like in the ancient world, like you, you know, if you talk to like the ancient Greeks or Romans or something and said, "Are you motivated here by politics or religion?" you'd get the same sort of blank stare. Um, so just to but, cover...
1: But, the, just to kind yeah. of, but I guess what Sam Harris would say, and understandably so, is, well, um, let's get into specifics. What about the fact that, I don't know, 80% of people in some countries say they support or believe in the stoning of adulterers or the cutting off of the hands of thieves? I mean, those are some of the examples that get a lot of attention, And we can have an entire debate about that, but I think that there is a place for looking at those numbers. But then we have to ask ourselves, are there actually a lot of Muslim-majority countries that cut off the hands of thieves and stone adulterers, despite these seemingly very, very high percentages of ostensible support? There are actually a very small number of Muslim-majority countries that actually implement anything of this sort. So we have to ask ourselves: Why is there a gap between what people say they believe? So, if people, if so, you could say: So here's here's one example. And I've had these conversations uh, with folks in, say, Egypt. And you might ask an Egyptian Muslim: Oh, what do you think about the cutting off of the hands of thieves? This is mentioned in the Quran. They would say: Oh, well, it's mentioned in the Quran, so obviously we're down with that. But then when you ask them, would Would you support this politically as something to be enshrined by law? Um, Then you get in a different set of of considerations about: um, Do people actually want to um, implement something in in this rather explicit way?
0: But you'll still you'll still get a fair percentage who'll say yes to the latter. So if it's like eighty percent will agree in theory. And then there's other polls which are like, do you favor a change of the law such that this it goes down, but it doesn't go down to like 2%. It oh, goes no. down oh, you oh, know. we're
1: not talking about a print. No, it would not go down to 2%.
0: Um So, I mean, this is the thing though, like you can use those statistics in a scaremongering way, but they're not they're not complete fabrications, right? Like people no. believe different things around the world. That's a truth about the world we just that we we can acknowledge or not. I guess you could say if you wanted to, like, not be seen as attacking Islam, you could say, yes, it is true, there are a very high number of Muslims who are Islamists but most Islamists of the more democratic kind rather than the radical kind and you wonder how far they'd actually really want to implement this stuff because they tend not to but you're still you're not in a position where um you know everyone in the muslim world apart from a tiny minority believes in a church state distinction and liberal individualism
1: well i think that you could have a majority of people who believe in a separation of mosque and state but not a separation of religion from politics and those are two very different things that i okay. think we all lump together because in in the medieval is in, in mid- medieval islam we do have a tradition of the separation between the sultan and say the clerical class or the caliph and the, and the clerical class, but the clerical class was, was, impl- was, um, was involved in law and the caliph was expected to execute the law that was derived by scholars. So there was a separation, but Islam was still, was still the law of the land, so to speak. So that's why that, the, the church state distinction means something different in Islamic context, how, okay. But, um, but as for your overall, your overall point, um, so if people want to, if people are listening to this podcast and they're like, we want Shadi to reassure us that Muslims are just like us and that they are, they are, or can, or have the potential to become liberals in like, I don't know, 20 years. Um, I think that's a problematic way of looking at this because it presumes that people should be liberals or have to be liberals and by liberals here, I mean the classical liberal tradition, but I would also say that it's theoretically possible. And, um, for let's say a parliament, an elected parliament pass legislation mandating the cutting off of the hands of thieves, um, in maybe very limited circumstances, Or to use a more likely scenario, let's say something that could actually happen has happened, which is restricting alcohol consumption, um, which is something that Islamists do advocate. Um, These are things that fall in the category. So when it comes to cutting off the hands of thieves, we would see that as, as cruel, unusual, brutal, terrible, extreme. And those that all those adjectives can be true. But that wouldn't necessarily make it undemocratic. So we also have to make distinctions between small D democracy and small l liberalism. So something can represent the democratic will, so to speak, or something can can enjoy democratic consent but be brutal, cruel, or unusual from our perspective. Um, And again, those distinctions are important to make. and but something like even alcohol consumption, which uh, restricting it, which wouldn't be cruel or unusual, but would still be a restriction on freedom and would still be considered illiberal. Um, that's something that um, yeah, anyway. Um, and there's an interesting conversation to be had there about um, the connection between private ritual or private belief and its implications on the public sphere. So, for example, Muslims there's not a single is, uh, Islamic scholar or at least not one who uh, very few historically and almost um, who would say who would say that alcohol can be permissible right um, so all Muslims agree this is prohibited from the standpoint of Islamic law, and that's something that Muslims are supposed to do from an individual standpoint, but it also serves a basically a purpose with political implications about creating a virtuous society or a virtuous community. And a lot of what we, could, we would consider to be private Islamic ritual has those kinds of broader implications if that makes sense.
0: It does, but let's let's get into why, because, like, the whole conversation is laced through with this idea of public and private, which is a Western liberal invention that's, like, a few centuries old. Um, but your argument is that that actually just doesn't both the public, private, and the, you know, religion and politics, these sorts of distinctions often just don't hold in Islamic thought, or they're, n- they're never there to begin with. So it's not like they're going against the distinction. The distinction was never being drawn in those terms to start with.
1: There are these distinctions, but they're very different than how we view them today. So for example, in the pre-modern Islamic period, there was a distinction between what you could do in the privacy of your own home. To give you an example... There are there are many there are quite a few prominent Islamic figures in history who were known to drink a lot of red wine, right? They would do that in the privacy of their own homes, and even some caliphs were known to drink wine, but all of these people upheld public prohibition on alcohol consumption. There was a kind of separation there, but from a different perspective. So, um, because they understood that one of the reasons that God or Islam or the Quran or however you want to see it um, prohibits alcohol, it's not just about personal salvation. It's not just about an individual's relationship with God and getting into heaven. It serves it serves the purpose of uh, pur- purposes having to do with social cohesion and societal order. And so Islamic law, unlike, say, um, unlike say aspects of canon law or Christian and in, Christianity inspired law, um, goes beyond personal salvation and has and and has um, and has others other set of objectives that can't be so. So I think we're if you talk to Christians, the reason that. Um, Ritual plays less of a role, or the reason that good works play less of a role than, say, faith, and you have this dialectic be- between faith and good works, and, and Martin Luther was someone who popularized this idea from a Protestant standpoint, um, and uh, Islam doesn't really have that in the same way, that Islam is not just about personal salvation, Islamic law isn't just about personal salvation.
0: So are you? is Islamic law, this is a genuine question, I don't know, would that be coterminous with Sharia, or does Sharia have a different connotation? Yeah, that's fair, yes. Okay, so let's start from the beginning here, because I don't know Islamic theology. Um, what, what is Sharia, like in broad terms? How does someone approaching this belief system from the outside understand this, and how this might be... I mean, just what it is on its own terms and how it might be distinct from how a Christian might understand divine commandment.
1: Okay, so the problem, there is one potential problem with calling it Islamic law or even Sharia law, is that the way us moderns think about law, we think about it as something that is codified, that there are articles and provisions, it's something that you can find in a book and you can kind of look at what the law says. This is not how a pre-modern would understand Islamic law. There is no one. So when people ask me, well, where can we find the Sharia you speak of, Shadi? There is nowhere. I can't point you to anything in particular. It's not somewhere. It's more organic. Um, it, it, it has evolved over time. And it's a very di- rich, diverse tradition. It's only in the modern era that we have Islamists, mostly, who try to basically, in a sense, modernize the pre-modern tradition, or even in some sense westernize it by making it more codified, if that makes sense. So, um, but basically, to answer your question more directly, Sharia would include things like the hudud punishments, which, which include what we mentioned earlier, something—the punishments— Um, for stealing, for example, or for adultery, and so on. Um, But it would also include things around divorce and inheritance and family law. But it would also include private practice. So we can't understand how to pray. Muslims could not pray without the Sharia. So when someone like Newt Gingrich or Trump or whoever say that Muslims should disavow Sharia— they're putting Muslims in an impossible position because even if you have fairly secular Muslims, if they're still praying privately, they need the Sharia and they can't disavow it.
0: But that does <laughs> get to the heart of the Islamic exceptionalism thesis, right? In that it is much harder. But the, then, does that mean that it is much harder for Muslims to just say, I am disavowing any political aspirations for my religion. You know, this is a private thing. I'll do it in my own home, but I have no desire to foster it off on the rest of the community.
1: Yeah, there are, look, there are, there isn't, there isn't one right Islam. So there are progressive interpretations of Islam that do try to move in this more privatizing direction. And they can draw on elements in the classical tradition. They just happen to be a minority of people in the in the Muslim majority world. And they haven't won out. Um, But that's not to say. But I don't like this idea of that. Oh, the progressives are wrong and they're trying to make Islam into something. It's not progress. People who have these more progressive reinterpretations of Islamic law. Many of them believe that they are being faithful to what they think Islam is and what it should be. So I don't like this idea of saying, oh. They're just like, um, the real Muslims are the ones who believe in the strict Islamic
0: law. No, I mean, I I think, though, that... Let me try and pull my own thoughts together here, though. Staying just within the realm of description, you can describe what people do believe and you can describe why without coming to any judgment on what they ought to believe or what's the most true interpretation of, let's just say, Islam is a set of family resemblances in a Wittgensteinian way. There's no single point that's probably shared by everybody. But then you can also say, as a descriptor, most of these family resemblances tend to contain overtly political aspects at their core in a way that would not be true of, say, Christianity or particularly Judaism because of like you say, the the idea that, that that salvation isn't just about person; it's about like the, the the set of relations in the community because of the centrality of uh, Sharia, because of structural yeah. things within it. Now, that's you, you can you can make that description without saying, and that is correct or that is incorrect. That is just a description yes, of what fair. most Muslims believe and why.
1: That that is that is true. So, from a descriptive standpoint, yes, but. But then then again, why, what is the starting premise here? So why, why do we feel like this is a problem to be resolved?
0: Thank you for listening to the Political Philosophy Podcast. This episode kind of ended on a challenge, which we take up or I take up in the next episode. Why do we see this as a problem to be resolved? I give my answer, Shadi critiques it, and then we get into it, about what that means and what it should mean for us as liberals. So that's all coming up next week. As always, if you want to support this podcast, there's a few different ways to do it. Sharing episodes on social media, always really helpful, always really useful. Um, We've had a lot of really good growth, getting new listeners in all the time, and Almost all of that is just from people sharing. So big thank you to everyone who does that. Please, you know, that's the simplest, easiest thing you can do. So please do. If you're able to support on a more monetary basis, we have a Patreon account. And having just got hit up for um, our annual website hosting fee, which was larger than I remember, if you can help out at all in any way just to, you know, cover the costs and whatnot, of this show. That would be really terrific and appreciated. I've been suggesting a donation of two dollars an episode, but it's really up to you. But I think that's a nice amount, you know, if the episode you just listened to was as valuable to you as a cup of coffee or an extra large pack of chips or, you know, pick your price equivalent, then consider sponsoring it on that basis we've got a few more patreon supporters have come in over the christmas holiday period so big thank you there as well as to our long-term financial supporters you are literally making this show possible this show goes out we do an episode a week ...often with people who are leading world authorities on their topic for free to thousands, in fact now probably tens of thousands of people. And my commitment to you as this podcast will always be ad-free. I hate getting podcasts interrupted by ads, and I've decided not to do it on this podcast. The trade-off for that is, every now and again... I'm going to include a little segment at the beginning or at the end talking about how gosh darn wonderful it would be if you could go to the Patreon page and chip in a couple of bucks. And it really would. So if you've got a couple of bucks to spare, I would love to have them. As always, big thank you for anyone who supports the show in any of those ways. And I'll hope you will join us next week where I will be continuing my conversation with Shadi Hamid. Hope you join us then. Thanks again for listening.